Okay, Romans chapter 16, we will be digging into the final verses of this great letter. And we've talked about this before. We've got the concluding remarks, we've got lists of names and things like that. I think this is all important for us to to go through. Um, Sometimes we have a tendency to skip over some of these things at the end, but I think there's great truths that we can find here, especially in this section that we have before us this morning, starting in verse 17. There's some final words that Paul has for this church at Rome. And so we're coming to the end of our study, and we've been going through these final greetings. Um, If you remember, Paul started off the chapter, I know it's been a while ago, but he started off this chapter with his commendation for Phoebe, who was most likely the person that was delivering this letter from Paul to the church at Rome. And and then he greeted 26 distinct people that were in the church at Rome. When we get down to verse 21, we'll see Paul send greetings to the Romans from those who are with him. So there'll be another shorter list of people, of those people that are with Paul, that send their greetings to the church at Rome. But in verses 17 through 20, Paul gives kind of a Pauline rabbit trail, um, and he sends a warning to the church at Rome about false teachers. Now, the bulk of the book has centered on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you remember, that was our theme way back in chapter 1, verse 16. He said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation. It's the good news about Christ. It's the truth about him that we only know from his word that he has revealed to us. The truth that must be taught, must be understood in order for anyone to be saved. He said in chapter 10, verses 13 through 25, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him? whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. The plan of God for salvation requires us to put our faith and trust in what God has revealed to us. That Jesus Christ bore the penalty for our sins on the cross. That by confessing our sins and believing in him for our salvation, we can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as a member of his family, being adopted into the family of God. That is the truth that has been revealed to us in the book of Romans. So having believed, having been declared righteous before God, there is now another process that we go through on a daily basis, and that's the process of sanctification. Our growth and maturity in the Lord as he brings us up into his image, brought about through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, being used through the learning that he has revealed to us in his word, as he uses his word to mold and shape us and transform us. We become saved through his word and we grow spiritually through his word as well. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is talking about the veil that lies over the face of the unbeliever when he reads the word of God. And he says in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 14, But their minds were hardened, for until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. 
But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. Whenever, whenever an unbeliever looks into the Word of God, there is a veil of misunderstanding. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, they cannot understand the things of God. But to those who are saved, verse 16 tells us it's different. He said in verse 16 of 2 Corinthians 3, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Having been saved, the veil is gone. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have now been given understanding. And he then goes on to say in verse 18 of that same chapter, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. And that verse is talking about us looking into the revelation of the Word of God. And it is like a mirror where we can see the glory of God. And what does this looking into the Word bring about? Our transformation into glory. It's our sanctification. That's what he's talking about there. That is our growth. That is our maturity. And that comes about through our continuing understanding and studying and knowledge of God's Word. So our understanding of the Word is a vital part of our Christian life. And our study of Scripture should never be taken lightly. It should not be treated as something that is optional, any more than a mother feeding her newborn baby is considered as optional. It's vital. And it's for this reason that one of the prime ways for Satan to try to disrupt the Christian's life And the Christian's growth is by attacking our understanding of God's word. By putting obstacles and hindrances in our way. Paul talked about this later on to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, where he said, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. He says, for if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you have or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. And Satan deceived Eve through his craftiness. And it's the same thing that Paul is afraid is going to happen or hinder the Corinthians in that letter in being led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. How does he do this? He does it through false teaching. He does it through those that teach a different gospel, those that preach a different Jesus. And these false teachers can become an obstacle to the children of God. And all too often, they are very, very successful at what they do. And so as we come to these next few verses in Romans chapter 16, this concern is on Paul's mind enough that he includes it in a word of warning to this church. He's almost done with this letter. 16 chapters of this letter, and right before he gets to the end, it's on Paul's heart to warn them about those that would teach falsely. So he's going to give them this reminder as how they should act towards those who teach contrary to what they've been taught. He says in verse 17, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eyes on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. So he, part, he starts off by urging the Romans, not a command to them, but a strong word of exhortation. It's what would be best for them to do. 
It's like telling someone who's about to do something that may not be very safe. Please, I urge you to be careful. I remember going up and hiking in the mountains with my kids, and one of my kids would get to the edge of the of one of the trails that we were on. And if you if you've ever been tried hiking in the mountains, you realize there's not guardrails everywhere. I'm terribly afraid of heights. I can't stand heights. So one of my kids would like get over to the edge and look over. It's like, please be careful. Please be careful. There's that urging of them. Paul has a heart for these people and he truly desires what is best for them as brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, again, he calls them brethren. Once again, showing that family bond as believers. So he's urging them here, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances. The word for keep your eye on is one that means to examine carefully. It's the Greek word from which we get our word scope. You look at something through a scope, right? Or through, look at small things through a microscope, right? What do you do? You're, you're examining them carefully. You're looking very intently at it. And that's the idea here. Believers are to examine carefully those who cause dissensions and hindrances. Keep your eye focused on them. The way to pay special attention to, to be very careful of them. We as believers should be aware of those who are causing dissensions within our body. We should be alert enough to be able to recognize when something contrary is being taught or presented to us. And in recognizing that difference, we should pay close attention to those people that are teaching that, that are saying that, watching them very carefully. And that's what Paul is urging these Christians in Rome to do. Carefully examining examining these people and what they are saying. Paul uses the same word to, in the, when he's talking to the Philippians. He uses it in a similar way, but it's in the, actually the opposite context. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, he says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe, and that's our word there, observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. And once again, he's saying there that we are to observe or examine closely, but in that passage, our observation should be on those who are walking in the correct pattern. And you see the idea here that we are to be an observant people. We are to be focused and diligent and, and observing everything around us. Observe those who are doing it right, as he tells the Philippians, and observe those who are causing problems. Believers are to be observant. We are to have a critical eye. So why do we observe those who walk correctly? He goes on to say in Philippians 3, For many walk of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Because there are many who are not really of the cross of Christ. And as believers, we should be a discerning people. Able to recognize when something is wrong, when something is out of place, or when something is contrary to the word of God. Remember what Paul said about the Romans in chapter 15 when he was talking about this Roman church. He said that they were filled with goodness. They were filled with knowledge. They were able to admonish one another. When I have a desire to see what is best for you and I have a knowledge of what the word of God says, then I am in a position to recognize when something is not right in the life of a believer, of another believer, and should be able to and willing to acknowledge them and correct them and to correct what needs to be corrected. 
That's part of serving together. That's part of loving one another and wanting what is best for one another, right? It's like my kid walking to the edge of the, of the cliff, right? If he gets to be a little too close, I don't just sit there and say, hmm, well, I hope something bad doesn't happen. No, I'm going to correct him, right? Because I love him. That's part of being involved in each other's lives and having fellowship as a body of believers. Wanting what's best for someone does not mean that we, that we leave them alone and let them do whatever they want to do. So we should be observant in our walk. And that means that we recognize when error has been introduced into the body of Christ. Specifically, recognizing and observing those who cause, it says here, dissensions and hindrances. The word for dissensions, the only other time that this word is used in the in scriptures in the works of the flesh that Paul describes in Galatians chapter 5. There it's put between factions and disputes. It's a word that means to cause division. These are people who divide the body of Christ. And as a work of the flesh, this is contrary to the work of God, to the fruit produced in the spirit-filled life. Hindrances this is the word that we get our word scandal from. Word that means to present an obstacle or to prevent growth. It's oftentimes uh, translated as a stumbling block. They present a stumbling block in the growth of the church, in the growth of other believers. It's these people who cause divisions and, pre- and present obstacles that we as believers ought to keep an eye out for. Well, how do we know? How do we know what is right or wrong? How do we know when they're doing that? Paul tells us in verse 17, they teach contrary to the teaching which you have learned. If they present a different teaching to what the apostles and the prophets have taught or written down, it is those who teach contrary that are in view here. They come in with some other teaching that is contrary to what the apostles have already taught them. Those that teach anything other than what you find here in God's Word, in the Bible, and pass it off as coming from God, they are the ones causing dissensions and hindrances. Now, we need to keep this in mind. Because oftentimes, when there are divisions in a church, people tend not to put the blame on those who are teaching error, but rather they put the blame on those who are taking a stand against them. They're taking a stand on the word. People come up and say, well, you know what? You're being too rigid. You're being too dogmatic. You're, you're taking a stand on this issue. You're going to drive people away. You're going to seem unloving. You're going to seem intolerant. You're going to seem like you're not accepting. What happens is people get this all switched around and think that those who take a stand are the ones that are dividing things. That's not what we see here in Romans. Those that teach contrary to the word of God are the ones that are divisive, that are causing the problem. Those that teach contrary to sound doctrine are the ones presenting a stumbling block in the church to the brethren. This is an important enough issue that it is listed as one of the qualifications for elders. Turn over with me to Titus chapter 1. In Titus chapter 1, Paul gives qualifications to Titus. He um, 
reminds him he left him in Crete to appoint elders. Then he goes through the qualifications of those elders. But if you look down at verse 9, we won't read all the qualifications here, but if you look down into verse 9, we break into the qualifications. He says, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to, and this is the, the elder, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Among other things that an elder needs to be qualified in, elders are called to refute those who contradict sound doctrine. This is not something that the body of Christ should allow to go on. It's not something that we are to sit back and allow to happen. It's important enough of an issue that those who would lead in the church are required to be able to do this. The purity of the word of God is to be preserved at all times even at the cost of breaking unity or breaking fellowship. In fact, that's what Paul goes on into next at the end of verse 17, back in Romans 16. How are we we to behave towards these people? We keep an eye on them. We know that they're there. They're teaching contrary to the word of God. What does he say? He says to turn away from them. We are to avoid them, have nothing to do with them. We don't sit there and we set up debates on the issue. We don't provide them a platform to present their side of the story. We are to turn away from them, he says. So here's the picture. The church is to pay close attention to those who cause divisions and hindrances through their teaching contrary to the word of God. And we are to have nothing to do with them, to avoid them. Paul tells us what these men are like in verse 18, right? We we might think that that seems harsh, but he tells us what they're like in verse 18. He says, for such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. These men are slaves, but they aren't slaves of the Lord. Being a slave of the Lord is is to belong to him. And we've discussed this before in the book of Romans, back in chapter 6. Verse 18, he said, and having been freed from sin... You became slaves of righteousness. Every person on earth is in slavery, but who are we enslaved to? We go from being slaves of sin or of the flesh to becoming slaves of Christ, slaves of righteousness. These men, he says, are not slaves of Christ. They are slaves of their own appetites. Literally, they are slaves of their own bellies is what he says here. The meaning is that they are not serving Christ in this way. They are serving themselves. They are indulging in their own selfish desires. Paul has strong words for such teachers. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. He has strong words for men like this in 1 Timothy 6. Look down at verse 3. There he says, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. Paul doesn't pull any punches here when he's talking about people like this, right? If anyone presents doctrine contrary to that found in the word of God, to that taught by Christ, to that inspired by the Holy Spirit, given to us through the apostles, through the prophets. He is what? He's conceited. He understands nothing. And Paul goes on, he says, but he has a morbid interest 
in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Have you ever seen situations like that? People that just want to argue for the sake of arguing? People that just want to cause dissensions and throw in these things and then everybody gets all worked up about it? This is how Paul characterizes such men. Not as, they're not misunderstood. Not as those who may be mostly right. That we can agree with 80% of the time. No. If that other 20% is contrary to the word of God. If any part of their teaching is contrary to God's word. They're to be avoided. They're not serving as slaves of Christ. But as slaves of their own appetites. Now, why is this such a danger? Why is this a big deal? If a man came walking into our auditorium, into our cafeteria, whatever you want to call this, if he came walking in here today and he started presenting, he comes up and he's got all kinds of satanic symbols on him and he starts saying, you know what, I want to teach you the gospel according to Satan. Would we sit there and go, okay, well, let's let's give this guy a fair shot? No. We would run him out of here. We would run him out of Gretna. But that's not how it works. That's not how these false teachers do it. It's much more subtle than that. It's it's a different teaching here or there. It would be someone who comes in here saying 90% of what we would say. And then 10% of... Well, I've never heard that before. That doesn't sound quite right. But 90% of what he said was okay. That's not so bad. I can sift through that. Okay, then the next time, the next message, the next book. Oh, now there's another 10%. Oh, now there's another 10%. Look at what Paul says at the verse of 18, in verse 18 here. He says, By their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. This isn't a bad guy. He's a great speaker. He's wonderful to listen to. He's so captivating. You see this all the time with preachers who have their own shows or any number of guys that you can find on YouTube or they have their own podcasts. They're very personal, personable. They can grab your attention. They're ten times more interesting than that guy that you come in here and listen to during Sunday school every week. There's no limit these days to finding teaching out there today. It's We invite this stuff into our homes. We sit there and Put on a podcast. Well, this guy sounded good. Okay, I'll just listen to the next one and the next one and the next one and the next one. Finding guys that can preach you, that can preach so well that you just want to sit and listen all day long. But what do they say? What is it that they're teaching? Is it accurate? Is it in accordance with sound doctrine? Does it truly measure up against the word of God? That's what we need to be listening for. That's what we need to be paying attention to. They break down our defenses by being smooth and flattering. And we know how that works, right? We know the phrase, you catch more flies with with honey than with vinegar. This makes us vulnerable because instead of listening to what they're really saying, we get caught up in how they say it and what we think of them. Oh, I know this guy. Oh, that guy's a great speaker. I've listened to this guy for years and years and years. Everything he says just sounds like honey coming out of his mouth. 
But we need to be discerning. Unfortunately, when we are discerning, too often we're the ones that are accused of being divisive about these things. Well, what do you mean I have to turn away from that guy? What do you mean that guy's not teaching something? They're the most dynamic speaker I've ever heard. They seem to have such a love for the Lord. Can't we just leave them alone? No, we can't. Because we are to be discerning and we are to stand for the truth of the Word of God at all times. When looking for false teaching, we tend to look outward to see what may be trying to attack us from the outside. But you know, the Bible tells us that attacks don't just come from the outside, from external sources. One of the things that I do at my job is I work with, with security, data security. I work with, I'm, an, I'm a geek, right? I work with IT stuff. Whether or not, with data security, that's whether or not a company can be attacked or infiltrated by bad actors, right? Bad guys. Sometimes you hear in the data security industry that you talk about data security being a piece of candy that has a hard outer shell, but it's all soft and gooey on the inside, right? You've all had one of those pieces of candy that you have to crunch it to bite through it, but then inside it's just some kind of gooey interior. But the idea when they talk about that is that companies are prepared for attacks from the outside. They have this hard outer shell, and so there's firewalls and there's intrusion detection and all these other things so that nobody outside can get in. But if somebody happens to come inside, it's all gooey and soft in there, which means that there's no protection in there. If they get inside, they can do whatever they want once they've broken through that shell. And unfortunately, that's oftentimes the way it is with the church. Turn with me over to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter warns us of how false teachers operate. Second Peter 2, look at verse 1. He says, But false teachers also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And then he says, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago, from long ago was not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Here's another reason why we need to always be on guard. False teachers don't just come in the front door. They don't just come in wearing satanic symbols on their shirts. They come from within inside. They, ar- they arise from among the people. This isn't just a distinct possibility. Peter says here that this will happen. There will be false teachers that arise from among the people, from among the churches, from inside. And that doesn't mean that it's just anybody in this room or in this church, but anybody that's in our confidence, right? We listen to certain things. We listen to, we have, we have sermons. We have preachers out there that good guys that we listen to all the time. And we let our guard down sometimes with them. And we say everything that comes out of their mouth is, is always going to be a good thing. That's not necessarily the case. There have been many people that have started off strong that have, as I call it, go off the deep end at some point in time that we need to be aware of and we need to be on guard for. 
with every lesson, with every teaching, we need to constantly be paying attention to the content of what is being taught and not simply following along because we always have or we, because we really like someone's teaching style. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 1 verse 8. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Paul includes himself here. Even if I come to you and I preach you something contrary to what I preached to you before, consider me to be accursed. And unfortunately it happens. Good teachers fall away. People who taught good, solid doctrine for years suddenly start to teach garbage. But unfortunately, it's not just them sitting there saying, hey, I want to tell you, I've gone 180 degrees and now I teach this. No, it starts off with, here's a little bit that's different, and here's a little bit that's different, and here's a little bit that's different, until five years later you look back and you say, that person's gone 180 degrees from where they were five years ago, and I didn't catch it. If their doctrine is not correct, regardless of who they are, we should turn away from them. The sad thing is, instead of wanting to take a stand on doctrine today, you see more and more examples of churches wanting to compromise instead. You get a lot of ecumenism that way. Churches agreeing on 60% of things and agreeing to disagree on the rest. But you know what? We all get along. Now another group comes in. Somebody else, oh, we're going to bring these people into our fold, believing something different. Now we agree on 50% of everything. Okay, now it's 40% of everything. And pretty soon, what do you have? Well, we all talk about Jesus, and we all love each other. That's what we have in common, but we have unity. It's unity at the expense of the truth of the Word of God. Doctrine divides. When you take a stand for something on an issue, there are going to be disagreements from people, but that is not a reason to shy away from taking a stand to back down because we don't want conflict. God didn't give us his word for us to pick and choose what's important and what isn't, for us to decide what's relevant and what isn't. We have a responsibility to study it in its entirety, to take a stand on the truth that it contains. He says in verse 19, For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The word for here is, is a reference, is a, uh, refers back to verse 18, just like the one in verse 18, or sorry, verse 17, just like the word for in verse 18 did. This is a second reason for turning aside from false teaching. The report of their obedience has reached to all. This was a church that had a tremendous testimony in not only their region, but beyond. They were known for their obedience to the word of God. Way back in chapter 1, verse 8, Paul had said, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. This church had a testimony, and Paul had a concern that their testimony would not be marred through the influence of false teaching. They needed to remain strong. They needed to remain obedient to the word. A church that is known for their faith and their obedience is not a church that can relax and let their guard down. In fact, a church like that becomes even more of a prime target for the world, for Satan, for his attacks. 
We can never get to the point where we're comfortable, where we're complacent in our Christian walk. As long as we live here in this world, as long as we are here waiting for glory, we are in a spiritual battle with the forces of this world. It is going on around us. We cannot let our guard down. We need to be alert at all times. We can't be that soft, gooey middle inside the hard-shelled candy. Just as Paul was urging the Romans to be, don't allow these men to hinder your obedience. If anyone told you the Christian life was supposed to be easy, they lied to you. It's not. It is not easy. It is filled with battles. It is filled with sufferings, trials, conflicts. The world hates us. Right up until the day when we're taken into glory, when Paul told us in Romans chapter 8, at that time, verse 18, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. When we are in glory, that is when the battle is over. But until then, we remain on guard. Now, the Romans were not having an issue with this at this time. It's important to point that out. They were still known as an obedient church. And Paul continues here by saying, therefore, I'm rejoicing over you. He's not rebuking them for this, but he's warning them that they don't become lax, that they don't let their guard down. I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. He wants them to know all about good. And be pure when it comes to evil. Not mixed up in in any way. And how do we know? How do we know what is evil? We know what is evil by having a knowledge of what is good. Right? If you know what is good, if you have knowledge in some area over something, then when somebody comes to present something contrary to that, you say, no. Because that's not the same thing. For instance, if someone were to come up here and hand me a piece of paper that had some characters on it, something scribbled on it, and I looked at it and I thought, I, I don't know what that says. And they said, that's a Chinese word for love. Okay. I don't know Chinese. I am not familiar with Chinese. I have never studied the language. I don't know anything about it. So if they were to tell me that, okay, maybe it's love. I'll take them at their word for it, but I have no idea. Now, if somebody else was to come up here and hand me a piece of paper, and I looked at it, and it had the word pickle written on it. And they said, that's the English word for love. No, it's not. Well, yes, it is. No, because I know English, and that does not say love. That says pickle. It's not the same thing. Why, do I, why is there a difference, one piece of paper and the other? Because I'm familiar with English. I have a knowledge of English. So somebody comes and presents something contrary to what I know, I can dispute that. That's what we're talking about here. Paul wants them to know what is good and be innocent in what is evil by knowing the word of God and being able to recognize what it says about what is good. We can then avoid those things that are evil and not be mixed up with them. So this is the warning that Paul is given, giving to the Romans. Even though they were not having problems with this at this time, in the past, I've spoken with other people in other churches, friends of mine from years past, where issues have come up, right? Things have come up in the evangelical world, just things that are floating around out there. And I've asked them, well, how's your church dealing with this issue? And they said, well, we really haven't dealt with it at all. We haven't really talked about it. 
because it hasn't reached us. It's not here. And I remember thinking, do you really want to wait until it reaches you and becomes an issue in your church before you start to warn people about it, before you start to talk about it, before you actually present this up, right? It's kind of like when you have little kids and you want them to play out in the front yard. What's one of the things you teach them? Don't go out in the street. I don't wait until the first time they get hit by a car to say you shouldn't have gone out into the street. Go, don't going out into the street is not a good thing to do. No. You teach them before it's an issue. And this is what Paul is doing here. He's warning them to stay alert and stay on guard because this will be an issue for them at some time. So Paul leaves them with a word of encouragement verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. For believers, we are called to battle here for a little while. We don't let our guard down, but we know we have the assurance that we will have final victory someday. Satan will be crushed someday, but today, we still need to be wary. We still need to be careful, but we don't need to despair because the victory is already assured. We know in the end, we win. God wins. We win with him. But the battles along the way are things that we still need to be wary about. Jesus Christ defeated Satan at the cross. He has already lost. Now what we need to do is remain faithful to our Lord and remain faithful to his word in our day-to-day walk with him. You note the terminology that's used here in this verse. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. We have a warring God of peace. A peace that comes from God defeating evil, defeating Satan. This is not peace at any cost. This is not peace that says that we need to accept everyone and everything, that we should avoid conflicts and just go along and get along with everyone. This is peace that comes from defeating evil, not peace that submits to the world, but peace that overcomes the world, that only comes through the power of God. Note also that we do have some involvement in this. God is the one who crushes Satan under your feet. We are his workers. We will join join him in triumph over Satan. A part uh, of that that is that we are at war against evil and we need to take a stand against it when it attempts to come into our midst in the body of Christ. How can we accomplish this? How can we remain true to the word of God through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? God will supply us with what we need to remain faithful. But we need to be ready. We need to be wise in the word, knowledgeable about the things of God, right? Understand what pickle means. It's not love, right? It's not the same thing. So that we can recognize evil and turn away from those who teach it. Now, after giving them this word of warning... You don't think we're getting through the end of the chapter. We are still going through the end of the chapter. After giving them this word of warning, Paul is going to turn back to his personal remarks. And that's what we see when we come to verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. And Cordus, the brother. So here we see a list of some people who were with Paul, right? These are the ones that are Paul's companions, those who are ministering with him at Corinth as this letter is being written. 
And again, I mentioned before that, that I think what this shows us that as believers, we don't serve alone. Paul wasn't alone. Paul wasn't sitting in a camp somewhere under a tree all by himself, writing this letter and sending it off and serving by himself. Even the Apostle Paul had those around him that he could rely on that assisted him in ministry. In this list, we have Timothy. He's the one that we know the most about. He would be Paul's protege. We have two letters written from Paul to Timothy in the New Testament. Um, Paul refers to him as his fellow worker. There's numerous occasions where Paul lists Timothy along with himself as he writes introductions to letters. Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ who are in Philippi. Colossians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Philemon 1, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon. 2 Corinthians 1.1, 1 Thessalonians 1.1, 2 Thessalonians 1.1. All letters where Paul was with Timothy. Timothy was with Paul as he was writing these things. So that shows that close relationship between these two men. Timothy was right there with Paul on many occasions. And when Paul needed to send someone to a church, send someone for some type of task, he would often send Timothy. 1 Corinthians 4.17, Philippians 2.19, 1 Thessalonians 3.20. So that was the involvement of Timothy. Timothy was there with Paul many, many times. Lucius sometimes identified with Lucius of Cyrene that you see in Acts 13.1. Some people also think that this may be a more formal name for Luke, which is another form of the name Lucius. But again, we don't really know. Jason, very likely the same Jason that gave Paul hospitality on his brief stay in Thessalonica in Acts 17. Sosipater could be the man in Acts 20 referred to as Sopater of Berea, who accompanied Paul from Macedonia at the end of his third missionary journey. All three of these men, whose mentions were Paul's kinsmen, they were, again, they would be fellow Jews, and very likely were accompanying him with a collection of the poor, uh, from, for the poor in Jerusalem. Possibly, maybe they were traveling because they were representatives of their various churches. Tertius is mentioned in verse 22, and he says, I write this letter. Tertius would be the scribe. He would be the one to whom Paul dictated this letter to, and he's allowed to give his own personal greeting here. Or maybe he just, you know, Paul's giving greetings for everyone else. I'll just write my little thing off to the side. I don't know. But anyway, he writes his, he writes his own little greeting. But again, similar to Phoebe, he was someone who had a very special honor, right? Someone who we know was a scribe of one of the letters of the Word of God. Gaius a man whom Paul baptized in, in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1.14, where he talked about it there. Possibly a man of wealth, since it says he was host to both Paul and to the whole church. Unlikely that this means that the entire church met in his home, but probably means that he was known in the church as a very hospitable man. And then there's Erastus, the city treasurer in Corinth. He would be a man of some prominence in the city. Erastus is an interesting one because... The name Erastus was found in an inscription around the area of Corinth as being a prominent ranking official. So there's an archaeological little tidbit there of this name was actually found as some official of the city of Corinth. Um, doesn't mention him as a treasurer, but as you can imagine, maybe he had a promotion, maybe he changed jobs at some point. 
But it's likely that this Erastus, as a companion of Paul's, a Christian brother in the church, would have been a fairly influential individual in the city of Corinth at this time. And then Cordus. We don't know anything else about him other than he's listed as the brother. So that may mean that he's Erastus' brother, or maybe it just means that he's one of our brothers and he's here as well. Verse 24, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. In most translations, you probably have this verse in brackets or a parentheses. Reason being that it's not found in the earliest manuscripts. Probably indicating that it was added later. It might have been a copying error. Because if you notice, it's almost word for word from what was at the end of verse 20. Basically just reiterates what Paul had already said there anyway. So we come to verses 25 to 27 of Romans 16. We see Paul's final words to the Roman church in the form of a doxology, giving giving glory to God for what he has done. And in these verses, we see how God is working in the life of the believer to establish or strengthen him. And this is accomplished by the power of God, working through his word in the life of his children. And we are, when we are established in this way, then we are prepared to deal with all that Satan has to throw at us. We are prepared to function as believers should function, effective in our ministry to the Lord. We will not be carried away by every wind of doctrine. So look at verse 25. He says, now to him who is able. And so this is a doxology to God showing his glory because Paul is speaking here about the power of God. He is the one who is able. And this would be, I would take it a direct contrast to the power of Satan who goes about trying to deceive the people of God. When he's talking about crushing Satan under your feet, who would like nothing better than to hinder our growth, who disguises himself as an angel of light in order to deceive us. In contrast to that, who do we have on our side? We have the only true God who is able. He has the power to establish you, to firmly plant or strengthen you. So we see God has the power to establish or strengthen his children. And how does he do that? What is the means by which we are established? He says, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. First of all, we get our strength through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here Paul refers to it as my gospel. Seems like an odd way to present it. My gospel. And this does not mean that Paul had a gospel that was unique to him. This is Paul's gospel. This is Peter's gospel. This is John's gospel. That's not what it means. But this was the gospel that Paul received from Jesus Christ. Proclaimed about Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ at the very heart of the Christian life. It is through the gospel that we can have a relationship with God. It is only through the gospel that we can have a relationship with God. It can't be altered or perverted in any way. This is the gospel that Paul has just spent 16 chapters basically presenting to them. And if you remember when we started our study of Romans, that this entire book really is a detailed look at that. It's a look at the sin and the depravity of man. It's a look at the death of Christ, the provision made for man's sin, the justification that comes through faith on the basis of grace. The sanctification that comes in the life of those who have been justified. And the glorification that awaits everyone that is involved in that process. It is every truth that is entailed in that, all about Jesus Christ. The details that Paul presented in the first 11 chapters of this book. A complete and detailed account of the gospel. It's this gospel that has the power to establish a person as a child of God. 
Paul presented it early on. Again, the theme of the, theme of the letter, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. This is the theme verse of this entire letter that we've looked at. That the gospel is the power of God for salvation. He says, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. And this mystery, we've talked about this before, but the mystery is something that God must reveal. That we cannot know without God revealing it to us. This mystery was not revealed before in the Old Testament. We think of mysteries as, oh, something I can figure out. We don't figure this out. God reveals mysteries to us. So this mystery that he's referring to has been kept secret up until this time. And he continues on with this idea in verse 26. But now is manifested... And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. This mystery is now manifested, and it leads to obedience of faith among all the nations. Now, what is this mystery? What's he referring to here? Well, it's not simply the truth about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That would fit what is said here, but that was made known years before Paul, by the prophet Isaiah. I don't believe that's exactly what he's talking about here, but it goes further than that, into all that God was going to accomplish with his gospel. And that includes not only the salvation coming through the Son, but the salvation has come to Jew and Gentile alike, and that Gentiles and Jews would both be saved into the church, into one body in Christ. And that's what we've seen throughout here, especially when we got to chapters 9 through 11. It's the same mystery that Paul is referring to in Ephesians chapter 3. Turn over to Ephesians 3 with me. We'll get through this. There's a lot here to finish up the book. But we're not going to leave here and have like one, one verse left or anything like that. So... Paul gives a detailed look into the truth of salvation in the first three chapters of Ephesians. In the third chapter, he talks about this mystery. It says in verse 1 of Ephesians 3, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you. Now, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. So he's relating this to them, right? And we talked about that when we were back in in Romans 9 through 11. Verse 3, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. So here we see, once again, Paul referring to this mystery, and he's, giving, he's going to give them insight into it, which he says in the next verse has not been previously revealed. He says in verse 5, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. But now it has been revealed to whom? Apostles and prophets. These are the New Testament apostles and prophets, not the Old Testament, revealed by the Holy Spirit. To be specific, verse 6, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Here it is, that Jews and Gentiles are fellow heirs in Christ, members of the same body. Now, that doesn't mean that both are now Israel. 
Israel is still Israel. But that both are partakers of the gospel and both become members of the church when they accept the gospel. It's the same gospel, Jew or Gentile alike, the same gospel, right? Clear back to our theme verse in Romans chapter 1, right? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. So when he says, and by the scripture, back in Romans 16, we'll stay in Ephesians 3 for a minute. But when he says back in Romans 16, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, the Old Testament prophets and scriptures made mention of salvation coming to the nations. They were always in view in some way. But the clarity of how they, that would happen hadn't been revealed to them before. There were no details given on that. Now we come to the New Testament and we see the details. We understand with clarity how that all comes about. Paul went over it, again, 9 through 11 in Romans. Here we see it in Ephesians chapter 3. When we talk about prophets, when it mentions prophets, we understand that prophets weren't only an Old Testament thing. The gift of prophecy continued on with the New Testament authors and apostles as well. That's why he was just talking about, or that's what he was just talking about in verse 5 of Ephesians 3, the holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Prophecy continued on until the giving of God's word was completed. But what was given in the New Testament was a continuation of, a further revealing of God's plans of salvation. It wasn't a reinterpretation of it. It was a further revealing of the details of it. So these prophets were not an either-or group. They were revealing God's word on a flowing and completely well-orchestrated basis. Paul's use of many Old Testament quotes while writing the new revelation of this letter gives evidence to that, right? We looked at, I don't know how many Old Testament quotes as he went through Romans. The entire counsel of the word of God in one continual, all-encompassing message that is given according to the commandment of the eternal God. Verse 8, if you're still in Ephesians 3, he says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenlies. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. The revealing of this mystery was not a new thing for God. All that the Old Testament pointed to is now revealed to be accomplished through the gospel of Jesus Christ, which has been made clear to us through the prophecies in the New Testament as well. This was all part of God's eternal plan. So back in Romans 16, the very end of verse 26, he says, has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. Once again, referring to the gospels reaching to the Gentiles, the ministry that Paul was specifically called for. This ties all the way back to his statements in the introduction of the letter. These last verses we're seeing bookend greatly with what with his introduction and now these final word with these final words he said in Romans 1 5 through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake 
This is what Paul explained way back in his introduction to the letter. It was Paul's job to bring about the mystery which God had revealed to him, to the Gentiles. And remember his comments about his ministry back in chapter 15. Starting in the middle of verse 15, he says, Because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul saw himself as a priest preparing a sacrifice to God as he took the gospel to the Gentiles, their salvation, making them acceptable to God. And that is a, that is a ministry that we all benefit from. Again, I won't ask for a showing of hands of who, who might be a Gentile in this room. I'm going to hazard to guess that almost all of us are. He concludes his doxology of the letter in verse 27. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. The gospel shows the splendor of the wisdom of God. In his wisdom, he was prepared, he has prepared a way for sinful humanity to be reconciled, to become acceptable and righteous before his perfect standard. How was that accomplished? Only through Jesus Christ. The gospel is about Jesus Christ. It's about his person, his work, his sacrifice. There is no other way for anyone to be saved unless he comes through Jesus Christ. And through his marvelous plan of salvation, God is glorified forever. All the glory goes to God for that. All the glory belongs to him. If I am saved, it's not because of my doing. It's in spite of anything that I've done. It's because of his saving me from my depravity and raising me up to a new life in Christ so that I can now live my life for him. That's what the book of Romans has presented to us in detail. Showing the perfect plan of God and the only way for anyone to be saved. And all the glory in this plan belongs to God and to God alone. Let's close in a word of prayer.